Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, July 6, 2010, and our special guest is Heidi Hayes Jacob. And Heidi, you're live in video. Welcome. Thank you, Steve. It's great to be here. And hello, everybody. Um, I appreciate those of you taking a little time this evening to, to join us for our discussion. I'd say I'd you have a very good summer crowd. <laughs> well, we'll have a good time. I, I think summer is a great time for educators to think about their practice and also have a little fun. So I'm happy to be here, Steve. We're delighted to have you are here. And remember to turn that mic off. And I'm going to do a little bit of introductions right now. And it looks like someone's trying to come through on the telephone bridge, and so I am going to go ahead and start that, Heidi. And so when I do, don't close it down. You'll see a little icon message come up saying it's connecting to the telephone bridge. And um, we just have to let that run for a second. Okay, so our telephone bridge is started. And Future of Education is sponsored by my employer, Illuminate. And the project I work on for Illuminate is called LearnCentral.org. It's a free social network for educators. We hope you'll come and visit it. That the interview series is an enticement. We are announcing our Global Education Conference. This is in November, multiple time zones, multiple languages multiple tracks, and all free. This is really going to be fun. We're getting a huge response to this. The first day that we announced it, we had 1,400 people sign up. Uh, we, it is all about inclusion. We're hoping we have people from all over the world talk about the things they're doing for global education. Coming up on the Future of Education, Saturday we're doing a Classroom 2.0 Live ISTE review show. That uh, should be a lot of fun talking about all the things that happened at ISTE. Uh, oh, I'm out of date over there. A Thursday before that is Ted Coldery on Teachers as Partners, which should be a lot of fun. The next week, uh, Niru Kosla, if I'm saying that correctly, on Open Textbooks from CK12.org. Also, uh, Graham Glass on Edu 2.0. And then the week after, lots more fun. So look down that list. I think you'll see something worthwhile there. We sure hope that you'll join us for another session. Uh, recordings are up, and especially the recording of John Taylor Gatto is finally up. I don't know if any of you were waiting for that, but there was some time. And he talked forever that night, as he is wont to do. And uh, we're going to mention him in the show a little bit later. But uh, those recordings are up at futureofeducation.com. If this is your first time in Illuminate, this is a participative environment. We're sure glad to have you here, and we hope that you will participate. You'll notice that below the participant window, you have some emoticons. You can smile or clap your hand or give a confused look or give thumbs down, neither which I expect to happen tonight. But you can play with those. You can also raise your hand using the hand with the green up arrow. That lets us know you want to take the microphone. But before you do that, if you want to ask Heidi a question, do go up to Tools Audio, run the Audio Setup Wizard to make sure that your microphone is working, and then I'll talk you through turning your mic on at the appropriate time. Um, I like, with a, with a group this size, and boy, you're really knocking it out of the park tonight, Heidi, 72 on a summer night, go up to View Layouts and switch to the Wide Layout. It's a little bit easier with as many people to see the chat. Okay, so now I'm going to give you permissions to interact in the first easy way. To the left of your map, you'll see a little wand with a red star at the end. Click on that and click on the map and let us know where you're listening from. And you can also shout out in the chat where you are, what time it is, maybe what the weather is. Well, a good crowd and highly North America-centric. Well, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure glad to have you with us as a part of this. And I'm going to move this forward. So Heidi, this is really fun. Uh, I just have loved going through the book. Uh, I'm going to have you turn your mic back on. And would you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and what's brought you to this point? I'd be happy to, Steve. And I, again, I appreciate everyone joining us uh, tonight from so many places. Um, 
I've been an educator a very long time, and I um, have worked in every state in the United States and in every continent but one. I have not worked in Antarctica, but I've worked around the world, and it's been a pleasure to do so. And one of the things that's always been interesting to me is the, the issue of curriculum choice making and design. And a number of years ago, back in 1997, I wrote a book. Um, it was uh, the, the second book I'd written. It was called Mapping the Big Picture, and I developed this model for curriculum mapping. And the notion for me was that people should use um, <clears throat> software-based tools to begin to share and access information about what was going on in their practice and build work together. And in the course of doing that, Steve, I began to notice something, and that was that a lot of the curriculum that was being entered into this, these tools was dated. And it was disturbing to me. And I started to take a look at this movement with standards, and even with the common core standards. The majority of standards I see in most of the United States are dated. I think they are preparing kids for about 1990. And I'm not really trying to be funny here. And then I started to look at the notion that students were processing information differently. And I was influenced by some terrific colleagues, one of whom I know you know very well, and I've been a good friend with for 25 years, and that's Alan November. Alan and I get along very well, and I think he was ahead of his time. And then a really brilliant guy whom I believe you also know, Stephen Wilmarth, who sat down with me and said, you have got to put your curriculum expertise to work. And you need to start to really think about how the new technologies are not just changing how students access information, but also how we need to design what they study. And so I began to explore this. And for the last eight or nine years, my heart, honestly, my heart has been in this work, was to try to find a way to start to make a contribution with an idea book that was in your face. <laughs> that was no excuses. Choose your century. It's time to move ahead. And what that would look like. If, if I'm going to be critical of current practice and dated practice, then I have to come up with replacements. So I worked really hard on looking at this. I have more to share with you about the book, and we can talk about it. But I also thought I would like to invite a flotilla of great idea people who I thought were superb in the field, people like Frank Baker with Media Literacy, or Vivian Stewart with Global Literacy, and Alan, and Benna Kalik, and Tim Tyson, and David Nicodula, and Jamie Cloud, and um, Shesky, and um, our incredible array of really insightful people so that I could bring ideas to people that they would need to consider. And the results have been amazing. And I'll just finish with this. I really think ASCD. ASCD has published a number, most of my books. I've gone with other publishers for other things. But they chose the book as the world member book, which means it was sent to almost 200,000 educators all over the world. That changes things. That's huge. And when they chose it, I thought, this is good. This is good for the field. This is good because I don't think people are afraid of, of making changes in schools. I just think they want to know how and where to start. I, I think there's a myth there. I think there's a real myth that educators are afraid of, of all of the new ideas. They aren't that afraid. I, th I just think they want to move ahead and know how to do it and are still burdened by old pressures. So. That's my introduction. How's that? <laughs> well, I'd say it's pretty wonderful. Um, I, I came at this book fresh from ISTE, and where we had a lot of really fun conversations at the uh, what we call Issue Blogger Con, which is this all-day unconference that's held we hold the Saturday before ISTE. And I, you surprised me in the book, uh, and let me tell you why. Uh, it felt to me like there was a subtext. And maybe you, you call it out more actively, and I didn't notice it. But the subtext for me was the active engagement of the teachers in creating the solutions. Is, is that, am I on the right track there? Oh, you need your mic back on, sorry. 
Heidi, we've got to turn your mic back on because you're speaking. We can't hear you. Are we now? Is that good? You're good. Okay. Um, that's an interesting point. I, um, I think the key is that we're going to need a new kind of teacher because we have a new kind of student. There is absolutely no question that students process information differently. And I think Steve Wilmarth's chapter on the five socio-technological trends that changed everything in teaching and learning have also changed what we need to do to be responsive. And I think on some level, some of the chapters you read about were very much about teachers. I think that's true, especially the notion of the upgrade that teachers are hearing. And they like it because it's not threatening. And it just makes sense. The idea of, hey, teacher, learn something a semester. Just agree to learn something. And take one day to practice and upgrade it with a new one, a better one. So instead of standing in front of a class and sitting there with a bunch of note cards or doing the oral report, which I think is the low point of civilization, I think then what we may do is teach them how to make a pretty good video podcast. or replace a book report with a Facebook page. Instead of writing about Julius Caesar in a report, make a Facebook page about Julius Caesar. I think it will require much more detailed thinking, much more semantic webbing. You're going to learn a lot more about who he was by doing that. Re replace your pretend you're in France day at the end of each semester when you're studying high-level French with a video conference with the group of kids who are studying English in Lyon, France, meaning go there, travel there. I think every elementary classroom in America should look at its curriculum maps, and I think middle and high school too, and find a strategic location where you should have an interactive session like this. Perhaps it's Illuminate, perhaps it's Skype, and interact with that class because it makes sense in terms of the curriculum. Well, those are all teaching and instructional options. And they're curricular, too. So on that level, I think you're right. But I also really am also pushing very hard on policy issues, as well as administrators, to deal with the four structures that I think are so problematic in teaching and learning. We can save that for a little bit. But yes, there is a definite message for teachers to agree to take a risk and, and replace one dated practice with a more contemporary one. That's true. So I'm going to turn your mic off again, and I'll ask you to turn it back on. Um, but uh, you know, I, I did interview Tony Wagner um, at one point, and, and you know, he talked a lot about being able to go to a district and work with a team, and that they would come up with, no matter where they went, the administrative and teaching team actually ultimately came up with the same educational solutions that everybody else would. It's just that they were engaged because they were a part of it. And you, it seems to me, you use the curriculum piece to, to, to bring into an action strategy, which is this is a place where we can start. You're not just envisioning the change. You're also envisioning a pathway to getting there, and that that pathway starts with the curriculum. Is that accurate? It starts, yeah, it does. I think it starts there. But I, also, I think that what it is is I think it starts with a very fundamental choice. And that's a kind of very direct question, which is to absolutely look at a mission statement and then absolutely look at the curriculum and say, let's get real. You claim you want to prepare kids for the future. You have that in, mission, in your mission statement, but your curriculum, your curriculum is heading for 1980. And that is not just technology tools. And that I want to make real clear to the people here that I think there is a real problem here where a lot of folks think 21st century, wow, let's go get the tools. That's just not true. I, I can use modern tools and look at dated content. You know, I don't think American kids know very much about the last 50 years of history. And, and, and in the book, you know, I make a case about that. And they don't. And I get worried because I think a lot of the science instruction we have looks way too much like the science type of instruction we had 50 years ago. That I don't see that kids in English classes are learning to read and write screenplays. That's even last century genre. So the point here is that if we start to say, 
lives within who our kids are, whatever we're doing has to help them 5, 10, 15 years from now. The kindergarten class, Steve, as you know, this year is the class of 2024. Right? That doesn't get people's attention. I don't know what does. So I think it's not just looking at the curriculum. It's confronting people with the gap between their state admission and I think a sincere desire to help their learners with what they're actually teaching them. The other thing is I think a lot of standards are dated. There's no question that the types of testing and, and what, is a value, what is valued for assessment is extremely frustrating to most teachers. I, I think that I'm saying, saying the obvious. So perhaps one of the other things that will push this work ahead is to say what is it we need to assess our students in, in terms of skills and understandings that will really best prepare them for the workforce or their lives or, or for possible options for their future. And so yes, you got a good point. I, I do think the book is very much about it, but I, but I also feel it's not just that. Tell me when I can talk a little more about this this issue of the way schools are structured, but I'll, we can stop for a moment on your point about curriculum. That's absolutely true. I think it's looking at the disparities between what we say we want for kids and what we actually support our students in doing. So what about schools where the, there won't be the openness to this kind of proactive approach to restructuring? The, the, the book presumes, the, it seems to me the book presumes that there's going to be an opportunity to actually sit down and look at what the actual assessments should be in real world assessments and then look at the curriculum and look at the skills. Uh, don't most teachers operate in a world that wouldn't even really allow for that kind of drill down because they're um, under such pressure with standardized testing? No, I don't, I don't run into it. I'll tell you why because I don't start with that. I think that I think that we can collude with the problem by thinking, oh my gosh, I have all these pressures. I don't, I'm not doing that. I, I basically say, look, just take a look at what you're teaching this semester. Take a look at all your formative assessments. I, I realize you're going to have state tests, and I realize most of them are going to be multiple choice selected response, criterion referenced uh, response, uh, constructive response, and it's going to be short-term, short minimal types of testing. I know that's going on. So basically, those are reading tests. Let's be really clear, because if a kid can't read the multiple choice items, they're fried. So I know you're dealing with that. But now let's just talk about what you're teaching. I don't care what you're teaching. All I'm going to ask you to do is ask everyone in the faculty, this isn't restructuring. This is just saying I want you to upgrade. I want you to replace one dated assessment type with one modern. I'm only asking you learn something. And if you're not willing to learn something, then please put that in the mission statement. And that's pretty strong stuff. But for me, Steve, that's just the portal in. The real mission in this book is to get people into it. Because what happens is if every single teacher in, a, in your faculty agrees to learn one thing or use a Web 2.0 application, like we have on our website, curriculum21.com, we have a clearinghouse. And teachers, send in Web 2.0 applications. And in fact, I'd like anybody listening to send some to us. We will post them. And I'll say, OK, instead of using flashcards, replace it and have your kids use visual thesaurus. Instead of doing a three questions at the end of chapter two, which that always rocks the kids' socks. That's a real motivator. What we're going to say instead is you use Gapminder. And I want you to create an interactive uh, set of data that will be used in a graphing form to display certain variables. Kids like it. I'm going to ask your little ones to start to use Jotit, or I begin to use an application where my kids might use something like Extra Normal, where I have some kids who have difficulty reading. Use this Web 2.0 application, type your words up, and you'll hear this avatar say them back. I just want you to try one. That's not hard. People will do it. I, I think the larger question, though, for me is what schools need to look like. Because I think the problem for a lot of the people listening is they're engaged and interested and want to proceed and want to move ahead. 
but they're living and working and breathing the air in school structures that are 120 years old. And that's our bigger problem, Steve. I really think so, that I can get people to use these tools, and that helps. But it's only the first part of this. So in the model I described in the book, which has received a lot of good response, because it's very practical, is, look, just start first by upgrading. Do a replacement. Just replace a native practice. Why is that? Because it gets the culture of the school exciting. It gets them excited. It's invigorating. And that means every student in that school knows that every teacher in that school is at least trying to learn something. And some of their teachers are really cooking. That I know, too. But the larger issue is what I call versioning, new versions of schools. And let me pause here for a moment. That is something I would like to get into. If you're, if you're OK with it now, I will. If you prefer, I, I wait a moment. I, I, I can do that. I'll leave that to you as moderator. I'm going to let you do whatever you would like to do. So let's get going with what you want to do. See, you're really good at this, Steve. <laughs> um, okay. Last year, last summer, I think it was probably August, I got a MacBook Pro. And I waited. Um, I have my group, I have a team that works with me from around the country, and I have a nickname for my Geek Patrol. I just love these guys. They're terrific. And now there's a geek woman who's one of them, too. So it's my whole geek posse, and they're great. And they said to me, Heidi, wait till August to get the MacBook Pro. And I thought, okay. And the reason I waited is because I wanted the whole new version. And I thought about that. And I thought about that, and I actually did a little bit of revision in the chapter before it went to press, the chapter four on, on new forms of schooling and new, new structures. Because it made sense to me, this idea of a new version. And it's different. You see, everything in the platform changes together. It's not just tinkering with one little piece and one little piece. And that's why I was very glad you did not introduce me as a leading school reformer. Because I am not that. I am against school reform. I couldn't be more against it. I think it's the problem. I think what we need are new forms. I think we need new versions. Let me, let me explain. There's four structures that have everything to do with how people teach and what they're able to do. And those four structures, just like the old science axiom, the whole is the sum of the parts, need to be looked at together to coagulate, in a sense. And when school reformers come along, they usually hit one of them without looking at the relationship of the other three. So one of those is schedules, both daily schedule, length of year, when kids graduate, time of year, all those questions. The second is how we group our kids. And if we continue to be smitten with chronological age grouping, we're really locking in possibilities. The third is how we group the adults. And I think it's the isolation of teachers, either by grade level teams or departments. It's really troubling to me. I think all teachers should be part of global teams as well. I think we should be looking at, at how we organize ourselves as teachers. The self-contained classroom frightens me. I, I'm, I'm dead set against it. I don't like it at all. It's a self-container. And the fourth is the use of space, both physical space, with some of the award-winning new school designs that are on, for example, designshare.com, which I highly recommend. They're really interesting. And they're not always moneyed. Sometimes they're in third world countries that have made good use of their resources. But the other type of space is obviously virtual space, like we're meeting in now. So let's think about those four structures, because I think that's what's holding people back. I really do. I, I think that teachers are trying to use 21st century tools, many of them, with certainly 21st century kids, a 20th century curriculum and a 19th century schedule and school setup. Well, we got problems. And so when I look at those four, length of year, graduation, which I'm against, and anyone who's read my book knows I'm very much against graduation, as we know. And I think it's a huge problem, this thing about grade 12. Some kids, if they had another year, they'd have a better life. And some kids should be out of, out of uh, high school much earlier. And there's something about this ritual of watching the hats goes up that people really need to take a second look at. I have, my husband and I have two grown adult children, our, our, our daughter and our son, 
are the joys of our lives. I am so happy they graduated both from high school and college. But I'm going to tell you the truth. If I had to do it over and I had the option to work with them on this choice, one of them I would have given another year and the other I would have let go early. It would have been better for them. We just don't do it. We are locked into schedules. We're locked into the way we group kids. We're locked into the way we group our teachers. We isolate people. People are in departments all the time. Kids don't go to a department. They go to a group of teachers. Teachers, the rarest meeting in an American high school is for everybody who teaches freshmen to be in a room together. It's, it's these four structures that really get in our way and use the space. So let me finish with an example of a new kind of school. DLMs. Now, I don't know who you've had on your program, Steve, on this, but to me, this is a hot topic, and that's virtual learning magnets. And I know Tom Welsh is all over this, and I really like this idea. Uh, in a way, it's virtual in that the, the, first, the first one is going to be the proposal, and it's through CCSSO the Council of Chief State School Officers, who I work with. I'm in one of their work groups on the new standards and everything. They are saying that the first will be on astronomy. And the study, not just of astronomy, but um, astrogeology, the makeup and composition of the planets and uh, the stars. They'll be studying astrophotography, new forms of telescope making, um, all these great questions. And so, First of all, the students who will be involved will be students from around the United States who are interested and motivated and show the wherewithal to be involved with this. So if the first part is the grouping of kids is going to be from anywhere. The faculty will be really high quality high school science teachers and potentially it looks like some people from NASA. And I wouldn't be surprised if the space station, the new space station gets involved in this. So we got a different kind of faculty. We have a different grouping of kids. The schedule will be based on students' time zones and availability to meet. And they'll be meeting virtually, <laughs> literally in space. Now, that's a new kind of school. Now, you can say, oh, that's way out in the future. It's not. I mean, look at how we're meeting right now. I, I think some of these policy issues are going to unfold because of the budget crisis. Because Schools and, and classrooms are harder to are harder to support economically. I think we're going to start to see the use of technology in some really good ways. Just like we're seeing a lot of these online programs and college programs, some of them I think are not very good quality, but there's some that are. Um, I've done some online courses with PBS. I've done a lot of work with public broadcasting, and they do a nice job. And I think what we'll see is that the kind of thing that all of us have participated in is going to go up a notch because we have even better tools to communicate. I think Illuminate is a good example. I, I've used their product before. I did some work with the Alaska State Ed Department and we went through Illuminate. It was terrific, but I look at it today and it keeps each iteration gets better and better and better. So why would we think otherwise that five years from now we're going to have some either better, even better tools and even, even better setups? Finally, I'll give you this example, and it's one I gave at a conference, um, a national conference, and I did a keynote. There's probably a thousand people in the room. And what happened is my webmaster said, what did you just say? I got this, this message from him. And I said, what do you mean? He said, there was something you said, and the, the tweet deck just went like this. And we figured out what it was. Um, and I, I'm sincere about this, so I'll finish with this example. This is where I think things are going. I think that the kids who are in the class of 2024, little Johnny and Maria and Abdul and Susie, any of them, their grandchildren, when they graduate in 2075, their schools aren't going to look like our schools do now. And I think it might feel something like this. So here's my story. It'll take 30 seconds, and then I'll stop and see if you have questions, whatever you want to do. Um, I live in New York. I live right outside of Manhattan. And I went down to um, um, the Apple store. Now, how many of you know Apple stores? I guess you all know Apple stores. Am I right? How many of you know Apple stores? Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're getting some hands going up. There you go. All right. Now, what, those of you who know Apple stores, yes. I'm seeing a lot of hands. 
I went into the Apple Store in Manhattan, which is my favorite Apple Store. It's beautiful. And I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's on the corner of Fifth Avenue, Central Park, across from the Plaza Hotel. And it's this beautiful glass encasement overlooking one of the most, I think, cosmopolitan corners of the city. And you walk into this beautiful glass arrangement with an a engraved apple in it. And you go down the elevator, and the apple store is underground. And it's big. It's huge. So I went in filming, and I think it's kind of, I felt like a little bit like a saboteur because I filmed with my Blackberry. So I thought that was a kind of fun thing to do. And I held it next to my ear, and I walked around, and I filmed all the activity in the Apple store. And what I noticed is like it's like no other store. It's like no other store in the shopping mall. There's nothing like it. First of all, you're met by a genius, as you all know. And every corner, people are active. People are trying out earphones. Somebody's trying the new iPad. Somebody's looking at equipment. Somebody's playing with a new program. Some genius is teaching you how to make iMovie. But the whole place is alive. And I think that schools are going to feel like that. And just like Apple turned the notion of retail marketing on its head by creating a different kind of environment, I think that's what we're looking at. I think we're going to see work environments that are going to be a little bit more like what Google has done. I don't think teachers need to come to school every day. I think it would be better if you had more variety. I don't think kids need to. I think what we're going to start to see in the future are going to be some new versions of schools, and we're going to move gradually and steadily to them. I have no illusions about this, but there is no question it's happening, and you see pockets of it. One of my heroes is Dennis Litke. Oh my gosh, what a guy. With the big picture schools and the Met schools and I, I just think, now there's a guy where they stepped out of the box and said, if we design a new kind of school environment, we can do new curriculum. Why do kids have to come to school every day? Let's start to look at what kinds of structures will make this happen. So for me, what I'm interested in right now is that question. And I'm starting to collect a lot of great information and case studies and examples of people who were first working on the upgrade, you know, that, that first move. Everyone can do that first move. What I'm really excited about are bold moves and the move towards new types of stru structures and versions of schools. So Steve, I will stop here for a moment and uh, leave it to you in terms of the last, our last block of time, however you would like to play it out. I'm, I'm game. You're being very generous with me, but I know my role and I know what I'm supposed to do here. So I'm going to turn it back to you. You have some slides, and I want to make sure that you have a chance to get to them. Uh, we will go to Q&A in about 10 minutes. So if there's anything you'd like to show on the slides that you haven't talked about yet, let, yeah, let's do that. I do have one. We can't hear you because your mic is off. So I'm going to ask one final question. Um, um, I actually don't feel. I have some slides, but I, um, I, I don't. I don't. Somehow I don't feel like I need to show them right now. They're actually pretty nice looking slides, but I don't think it's necessary right now. Um, I'd rather see if anyone has a question right now and respond to that, because my hunch is the time's going to go pretty fast. Are you okay with that? Absolutely, as long as I can ask the first one. Okay, so here's my question. I love the vision. I really feel like at least at the local school level, you've provided us with a pathway to adoption that really makes sense. But I look at the larger vision, and I think of all of the great examples like the Met schools and, and like uh, many, many others, and just how hard it is for adoption to take place. And um, how do we overcome the potential danger that the school system will be like Detroit, that no matter how much there are good examples, that it will be very hard for the body as a whole to actually make a move? And, and how do you address that particular issue? And you have to turn your mic back on. I think that we're going to see some different kinds of shifts. Let me, let me give you an example. I think that we are in a really seriously troubled time. And even as we're all talking, there are thousands of teachers waiting to see whether they're going to be back in school this fall. I mean, the issue of layoffs and 
budget cuts and states running out of money. And of course, and honestly, I'm not just trying to be, say this, it's the truth. What is one of the first places they cut first? It's education. Um, those are real issues. And, and yet here's, here's one of the things that we're starting to see. The state of Texas, which of course is going through this controversial um, adoption issue and real, some of the decisions made by that group, the state ed uh, curriculum people are really on a level outrageous. I mean, whatever your politics, you just don't say Thomas Jefferson was not an influential thinker of the 1700s. That's a little irrational. <laughs> That's bad. <clears throat> But let's talk about something else they decided. Let's set aside the curriculum choices. We can debate and argue that. And I'm always open for that. I think that's healthy. One of the things that came up out of that, though, that is interesting is it's my understanding that they spent close to $350 million on textbooks. They're a huge textbook state. That's why they're important to debate and think about. And there's some great educators there. I've worked. I've probably been to Texas 50 times. I'm not exaggerating. I really like the state in a lot of ways. One of the things is they're very influential on that. Well, because they wanted to save money because of the budget crisis and, and all, they have decided to cut this down to $35 million. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to buy Kindles or some variation of a Kindle. So what's happening is because of certain crises, what's beginning to emerge is perhaps some newer solutions. Now, I don't consider that idealistic. I consider it realistic. I also think that we have an extremely complicated country in terms of our student population. <coughs> we have the highest domestic migration rate of any industrialized nation. We have huge numbers of, of adults who can't read. And we have some serious problems. So when we start to look at communities that are impoverished, that's not, that's not going to go away fast, if ever. And I think the schools reflect those problems. So on one level, I think you're going to see some newer solutions to newer kinds of schools. Um, Unfortunately, this battle over charters is problematic. I think every public school should be a charter. I think public schools need more freedom as opposed to pitting people who are innovative and entrepreneurial against public schools. I think there's policy questions here that need to be addressed, and the, the newer technologies will help in that direction. But in terms of poverty, that is, that's a root problem for all of us. And, um, I think we're going to see that that will be a drag and a difficult part of our work as a, as a nation. It's troubling. And I agree with you. I don't think it's going to go away fast. But I also know, <coughs> excuse me, that I work with a lot of city schools. I work with Chicago. I just did a major contract with Chicago, um, one of their largest high school districts. They had about 28 high schools involved. I'm working right now with the New York City Board of Ed. And believe it or not, they're finding ways to start to use technology and software tools to begin to, for example, with curriculum mapping, share and build curriculum. That little by little, even some of our areas that have some of the greatest challenges are starting to use these solutions in more productive ways. I think that's promising and helpful. But until America wakes up and gets that as a country, that our number one natural resource are our children just like the Japanese rewrote their constitution after World War II. Because we said, you can't have a military. Well, we're saying, okay, we get that. We, 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 we get we can't have a military. The Japanese understood that. So they changed their preamble to say something to the effect that since we have limited natural resources, because they don't have very much land to grow anything, our number one natural resource will be our children, and we will create a fantastic education system. I don't like race to the top. I don't like some of the policies of this administration. I'm not happy about them. Uh, I have a lot of difficulty with a lot of what's going on. So um, for me, I think you do the best you can, and you have to kind of be a warrior. I, I think so, you know, in your own way. And I'm seeing some positive signs. And I think that there'll be, it'll be in pockets. 
and then I think there'll be a few states that really come through. And, uh, and I think that just like we're looking at new energy alternatives, I think we need new schools, new types of schools that will help make a difference. So it'll be uneven. I think your comment was um, it was very direct and very honest question. I appreciate it. So we're going to turn the time over to the audience now to ask questions. If you'd like to ask Heidi a question, you raise your hand. That's the icon below the participant window with the hand and the green up arrow. And I will tell you how to take the microphone. You can also put a question in the chat, although that chat flies by quickly, so it is helpful to have you raise your hand. And Diana, you are first. I'm giving you the mic. And you click the microphone audio button. There you go. Hi there. Um, Heidi, so glad you could uh, be on here tonight. I heard you speak in Arizona a number of years ago, and you seem to be still still on your game pushing the envelope, and I appreciate that. Um, I'm very concerned about what's going on with the Common Core standards, and I was wondering if you could comment. I'm pretty uh, suspect that the testing company is the one who basically had a hand in developing the standards, and then will also produce the test. That seems off to me, and I was wondering if you could comment on, on that. Yes, um, it's, it's, my experience with CCSSO is a little different. I um, am on a work group. They have a series of work groups. They had a work group that worked on the new reading standards, and then the and reading and writing, and then the new math standards. And I worked on one on global competencies, which should be out for all of you to see uh, soon. One of the things you should know about that's part of this, and I, let me give you a website to go to. Go to edsteps, E-D-S-T-E-P-S dot org. Edsteps is sponsored by CCSSO and the standards work. And what they're working on right now that may surprise you is a replacement for assessment. And they are collecting digital um, assessments or digitalized writing assessments as well as media assessments to create a database that will be scaled so that we can actually submit student work and begin to get feedback from it. It's a very big project. And I think part of the goal is to come up with newer assessments that, that replace the older ones. Um, my experience now with Common Core, and I've actually am in the process of working with a number of groups in transiting or translating the Common Core into various states and, and, and cities and different organizations. And so I'm quite familiar with it. I think the Common Core is pretty general. Uh, I think it is on purpose because it's for the country. And I think what you would find is that the majority of states have done a more granular job of standards work. So for example, in Arizona, if I look at your ELA standards and your frameworks, the performance indicators are quite precise, if I'm not mistaken. Whereas I would say the, the overarching type of standards you'll see on the Common Core are not as precise. I think what it is is it gives people some latitude on how to make their own modifications. So I, I think what's going to happen in real life is that the Common Core will go out there and a lot of the states will find it, um, they'll find their own work more precise than the Common Core, but they, they like some of the features in it. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how it translates. Finally, some of their expectations are actually very high and are higher than some of the states. Because you know the states are all over. We have 50 countries in the United States. We really do when it comes to education. Every state is different. Um, I don't think, it is not my understanding that the testing industry in particular, or one testing company, is going to come up with an assessment for all of, of the Common Core. And if that were to happen, I frankly think there would be um, a tsunami of a response, very much like you just stated. So I also don't think, I also think that the items on, on it are, are broad enough that frankly a lot of the national types of tests we take and certain aspects of say the ACT or the PSAT or the SAT or the Iowa's, they're not that different from some of the items on the Common Core. Where I think it has potential for being strong 
is if we start to come up with some uh, a batch of recommended formative assessments that people could draw from, or if this this new digitalized approach works out, then I think it could end up being pretty good. But I wish I wish it would have been bolder. I'm not. I, I wrote I wrote my response to it. I, I wish it would have been more emphasis on modern media, as opposed to kind of it felt a little bit like a sidebar. But in terms of the way it was written, it was very well written and um, uh, and pretty safe. You know, that's my take. So John, I know you put your question in the chat, but it's long gone. So I'm giving you the microphone if you want to turn your mic on and ask it. Yes, Steve, thanks a lot. Uh, hey, Heidi, uh, good to listen to you tonight. Uh, so here's my question. How do we get administrators at the local level uh, who only give lip service to technology to get on board? Um, and here's what I typed in. Even though we may have a one-to-one -one initiative in place and really have some great technologies, some administrators still don't use the technology. You know. Um, They've got laptops, and they encourage teachers to use technologies, but they're only using their laptops uh, as an email reader or to check grades. So how do we get those local administrators on board? I love that one. Thanks, John. That was, that was a really nice one for me to pitch back, so thank you. Uh, I think one of the coolest things you can do is something we do when, when we work on Curriculum 21. And you know, you only you can only do so much with your work and your life. But in in your own way, you've got to make those moves. Um, when I work, for example, on curriculum mapping with a city or a district, I won't do it. I refuse to come unless the administrator starts mapping too. Everybody maps. You map your PD. You map your professional development. If someone is working on using the tools like laptop initiatives, which I think is the wrong phrase. See, I don't like that at all. I think it, that's like calling it the pencil initiative or the pen initiative. What it should really be is 21st century curriculum and teaching and for 21st century learners, and how are we going to make that happen? Well, it strikes me that also means we need 21st century leaders. So we ask people, and I write about this in Curriculum 21, to kind of take a pledge and say, I agree to upgrade and replace one dated practice with a, with a newer one. That also means I'm going to ask the administrators to. I am right on your page, man. I agree with you. So I'll say to administrators, look, I, I did this today, as a matter of fact. I was in a meeting today in New York. And I said, these administrators were saying, this is great. We want our teachers to use these tools. And I'm going, right, well, you do too. I said, why, why are you planning all these workshops? Why aren't you? doing point to point and getting your teachers to talk with some group of teachers in the Midwest that's already worked on this program you're working on. If, you, if you're looking at RTI, some of you must know RTI, why not, why not have your PD set up so you could have a Skype session with a school that's done really well with interventions? Or why don't we make you as a principal, because the principal is the most isolated person in the building. There's only one principal in a building. And I just feel for them. I think they have a very, I think they have an absolutely impossible job. As a matter of fact, John, if you go to um, my name, which is at curriculum21.com, I wrote a blog post which called Is the Role of the Principal Obsolete? I think it is. I think it's an impossible job. I think we need distributed leadership patterns. I just don't think one person can do it all. So sometimes these men and women get a little overwhelmed, but, but I think the way around it is to get them to agree to try and, and make one replacement. I'll give you a great example. There's a school district near Albany, New York, I worked in last year. And we were working on these types of upgrades. And the superintendent it was terrific. And I said, you have to do this too, you know. And he said, sure, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to think of something. And I said, OK. And this is what he did. It was terrific. You know, how many of you know at the beginning of the year, Almost every school district has its opening day. Who knows what I'm talking about? Does everybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And my experience is they're usually a real waste of time. And that what teachers would much rather do is get something done. It's just an idea. Just think about it. And um, so this guy said, I asked, I did a little survey. Use SurveyMonkey, by the way. And he found out that teachers absolutely, really, 
really would prefer not to have opening day where he gives his speech and they welcome the new people and all that. And so he did something different. He made a really good quality video podcast and he interviewed the new people and he had them share something about them, who they were. He then went around to all the people two weeks before school was going to open, people like the bus drivers and the people who work in the cafeteria about why, why they were excited to get back to school. And some of it was actually very moving. And then he talked about some of the things they needed to know. And he said, the only thing I ask, and he had it attached, um, I think he had it on a blog post. He says, I just want to make sure all of you read this or viewed this, so just fill this in at the end. And the, the, the result was just fantastic. And it was very funny, too. And here was the point, was he gave these people a day, and he was demonstrating the tool, and he was using it for a good purpose. So I think what I might do, if I were helping an administrator, is show them examples of what they could do. Some people, an administrator that you're describing, and I know what you're talking about, who's unwilling to learn something, on some level needs to be called out. And it doesn't have to be done in some nasty confrontation. That never works. But I think the point here is, in a, in a, in a very direct way, is to say, look, it's in our students' best interest that our whole school takes this on. And that means everybody, everybody is going to do an upgrade. And that doesn't mean turning on an LCD projector. That does not make you Einstein here. And, and, and making some of these adjustments, I think, are I think people need examples, is I guess is what I'm coming from, John. And so the more examples I can give, the teacher in me knows that uh, if I can make it safer for people, the majority of people will try. And there's some people who won't. There's some people who shouldn't be in education because they don't want to be educated. But majority of people, I think you can, I think you can get small moves in there. So I'm giving AJ the mic. AJ, you've waited patiently to turn your mic on. You click the larger microphone button at the bottom of the participant window. Are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Hello, Heidi. And thanks for talking to us tonight. Do you think uh, digital textbooks are really a step in the right direction or just a band-aid? Seems to me that the Kindle and similar devices miss out on the creative and collaborative capabilities that bringing laptops into the classroom provide. I kind of see digital textbooks as more of a cop-out than anything. I'm just interested to hear your opinion on the actual learning return on investment of digital textbooks. I think you raise a good point. I mean, I know that was a very carefully, thoughtfully framed question. Um, I, I basically feel very good about the notion of having students having easy access to a wealth of books. That I like a lot. But I do think that the limited options that go along with, say, Nook and Kindle are problematic. And I think you have a very good point. Um, I think what we'll start to see is going to be the use of probably the next two or three iterations closer to an iPad format that would allow me to have a more dynamic opportunity to search and share and work with others simultaneously as well. Um, there's no question that books are going to leave us because we just can't support it. It's too expensive. It's, it's, it's like film. My husband's in the film industry. He's been in the film industry his entire career. We've been together 31 years and before then he was in it. And one of the fascinating things is for him, he still loves to look at and appreciates everything from 16 millimeter all the way through every iteration. But what's happened is with the new digital film, it's, it's democratized filmmaking so people can make more movies. And there were certain qualities that are lost using you know, better quality film. And I think in a similar way, there will be some trade-offs. Um, I love books, but I also I love the feel of a book, but I also like the feel of trees. On the other hand, we have this other question of recycling the electronics that we, electronic equipment we make. And so I, for one, think you're on to something. I appreciate that question. I've never been asked that question. And I think I think very interesting question. I have to think some more about it. But my initial take is that, that we don't want just a simplistic, unidimensional book accessing format. We want something that is more dynamic, which I think your, sub, your question suggests. So.
So I can't tell if Lynn, Sarah, and Anil have actually wanted to ask questions or if they were raising their hand earlier when you asked people uh, to respond. So I'm actually going to clear them and then Lynn, Sarah, or Anil, if you have a question, just go ahead and raise your hand to get them. I'll call on you. We've just got probably time for one more question. There we go. Anil, I've given you the mic. Go ahead and click your larger microphone button. And if you don't have a microphone, it looks like you are typing that question. So while you're doing so, I'm going to go to the end of the slides and just put up our coming interviews. Oh, there you go. Hi, Heidi. Thanks for giving this talk. It's been really interesting listening to your uh, perspectives on it. Um, I had a question. Um, I wanted to know specifically what technological tools do you see uh, these new schools in the future using, like, for example, video conferencing could be one. Um, what other types of collaboration tools and uh, like technologies could you see uh, them using in the future? Um, I think what, what's going to emerge is going to be, um, I think what's going to happen is, is we're going to create learning environments almost the Web 3.0 notion or the notion of meeting places where we can create experiences through avatar type representation. I think right now I was talking with a, a teacher recently who was telling me that he had this idea to create a, a world where educators could meet and construct curriculum that looked like architectural structures or something like that. And I thought, that's brilliant. And that part of what I think the technologies will start to do is we'll be having interactions between our students in our own classes and globally, almost like gaming is and video gaming, where we create new solutions together. I think there's going to be new forms of that. That's one. Um, I think video conferencing and Skype is going to just get seamless. I think, you know, first of all, we can now do it on on our handheld devices, but I think in classrooms we'll start to have very crisp and clean imagery where we'll go on e-field trips all the time. That you're studying the terracotta soldiers, so you'll be in Xi'an, and you'll have a student docent from a school there who will who will take you through the the, the museum there. We'll I think we'll also start to see new forms of art making, new fusions of multiple forms of music, for example, using musical tools, even more advanced than MIDI type tools, and put those together in fusions with CAD programs where we see three-dimensional forms created or new types of events that students will be making worldwide as well. Um, I also think that we're going to see some new forms of, of collaboration on studies, research studies that will be worldwide between students and that perhaps what we'll begin to do is almost like a WebEx notion, be able to share or, or, or have students show us some of their perspectives, not only scientific perspectives, but, but perhaps have them give us experiences where we simulate what it's like to, like to live in their particular country. That I think there's going to be newer changes, interfaces between tools where we can have more simulation experiences um, given to us by people on the other end of the camera. Um, I, think there's, I think there's going to be some tremendously new exciting ways of working and, um, and my hunch is it's going to be one of these kids in the class of 2024 It'll come up with an idea we haven't even thought of. So that's a great question to end on, by the way. And um, I'm very interested in new types of schools that will foster new types of possibilities. And, um, and I thank you. I thank you all for joining me tonight. We had a pretty good turnout here. And um, um, Steve, it was a pleasure. And let me just compliment you on something, because you, you don't bring this to yourself, but I want to just say this, that your starting of Classroom 2.0 um, has really changed 
education in terms of the ease and comfort level people have in starting social networks and professional networks and names. And um, I just want to thank you for that and for giving me an opportunity to talk about the book and some ideas. So thank you very much. It's really been a been a pleasure. I hope everybody has a good summer. So it's good. Heidi, you've been terrific. This has really been a lot of fun. I'm clapping again for you. Uh, I think we had 110 people. On, uh, in a July midweek day, you're to be commended. Obviously, a really fun vision. And I love the book. I encourage people, if you don't already have a copy, to go out and run out and get one. Please do join us on Thursday for Ted Coldery. Uh, and thanks again to you, Heidi. That was really fun. Okay, and we're going to let you go because it is the hour is up. Thanks, everybody, for coming. I'll stay on for a few minutes if anybody wants to do some follow-up Q&A. But you may leave at this time. Do not feel that you need to stay. Sure, a lot of fun. Uh, uh, ignore the date order in that listing there, but on Thursday, Ted Coldery, and then on Saturday morning, the ISTE Review Show, which would be a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for coming. That was really an interesting event. John, yes, I think we've all arrived home safely from Misty, wishing that we were still in those engaged discussions. Carol, and you don't need to worry because we've taken about a month's break on the interview series. And so um, you're doing great work, and I appreciate your being here tonight. It's a lot of fun for all of us. Um, it doesn't look like we're going to have a lot of after show chat, so let's close it down. Um, sure, enjoy my time with all of you. So thanks for coming tonight. Thanks again to Heidi. Have a great night, everybody. <laughs>